0: The BC Civil Liberties Liberties Association and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association have written an open letter to both Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix on the subject of religious associations and writing to say that the orders that ban in-person worship right now should not be in place. In fact, religious gatherings could go ahead and be done in a safe way. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Kara Zweibel, Director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Kara, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, what is the, the basis of this, the open letter uh, to uh, Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix uh, talking about religious gatherings? What is, what is the main point?
1: Uh, the main point is that, you know, worshipping, um, religious belief and religious worship are constitutionally protected activities, and um, and when the government restricts them in this way, and in, in BC it's a very, um, you know, severe restriction, basically a total ban on in-person services, um, those restrictions have to be justified. And we say that when you look at the other activities that are allowed to happen, you know, with precautions, so shopping, uh, eating at restaurants, um, all of that. That that this justific- that this restriction, excuse me, on the religious services is not justified.
0: Uh, what about the argument uh, which has been made by uh, the health officer, by Dr. Henry, when she's been asked about this, uh, saying that there have been cases of transmission of the virus in religious gatherings, and that's why they have been singled out.
1: Well, I think that um, I certainly don't I don't have all of the data in front of me but I, I think that probably there have been instances of transmission in in other settings as well and I think that many of the um, cases where there has been transmission in in religious settings um, some of that occurred before we we knew and before we were taking the kind of precautions that um, that we're taking now so it's not to say that um, you know a, a a house of worship should throw its doors open and, and everyone can come in and it's business as usual. It's it's the idea that um, there are precautions we can put in place, uh, similar to the precautions that are put in place in workplaces and in schools and in all of
0: the other um, venues where where we're allowing people to congregate. And is there a difference then when we talk about religious gathering being essential? What about the argument that you can do that type of gathering? It doesn't have to be in person. That there are other ways that worship services can be held, and people can still get access to worship, albeit it might be online. It might be in a different way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I think that um,
0: I think we we fully accept that there will
1: have to be modifications. But um, the fact is that. the the sort of remote worship um, might work for some people and it probably really doesn't work for for some others. So there will be some people, um, particularly older individuals, particularly newer Canadians, um, who who may not have access to the technology that they would need to access those things. Um, And then, of course, there are certain things that happen sometimes at a a religious service that can really only happen in person. So receiving communion and and things like that. Um, Those are you know those are things that I think um, houses of worship are trying to to figure out how to do if they if they could do it in person, how to do it safely. Um, but but there are ways to do that. and and and, in any event, I mean, the the question we're really asking is, you know why why is this targeted in this way? and um and does it does it need to be? So again, it's not to say, Let's go back to you know the way things were in 2019. But can we can we find a way to do this safely?
0: And, and making the comparison as well, uh, I know the letter talks about the fact that the, that that there's such a contrast when compared to the rules that are in place when we talk about schools, uh, certain workplaces that uh, you mentioned as well, restaurants, pubs, bars, uh, retail. Uh, if those places were also closed down, w- would there still be the argument that in-person worship is essential? So I think there, there would still be an argument it's, I mean,
1: I think that, you know, our position is that um, in-person worship is essential for some people. It's, it, you know, what, what we deem essential in society is, is highly subjective. And I think that the struggle that we're all having is that we, we all have different ideas about what is essential. But the fact is that constitutionally, we have freedom to to practice religion. And for some people, that means, you know, in-person worship, Um, So there would still be an argument, even if restrictions were in place across the board. But I think um, I think the government would certainly have an easier time justifying restrictions if that were the case. I think why why we're posing this particular question at this particular moment is that it it seems as though uh, a constitutionally protected activity is being treated worse than activities that that don't get that constitutional protection.
0: Are there other avenues you think can be taken if nothing changes as a result of this open letter or, or the or the restrictions don't change?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there are already in other jurisdictions, we're seeing some challenges to, to rules popping up in, in the courts. In Ontario, there's a uh, an injunction hearing tomorrow brought um, by a church that is... Um, uh, you know, that is concerned about the restriction that's been put in place on in-person services. They are a very large facility, and the rule where they are is that they can have no more than 10 people. So they're, again, questioning, you know, why why can people go to, um, you know, Walmart or the grocery store to do their Christmas, you know, shop for Christmas dinner? Why can they go to Walmart to get their Christmas presents but not go to church for a Christmas service? And, and they're asking for... Um, you know, for uh, a lesser restriction, not again, not to throw the doors open, but to to have a capacity restriction. So I think we we are starting to see these challenges and we we may see that uh, in British Columbia as well.
0: All right. Uh, We'll leave it there for today. Uh, Kara. thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks again for having me. All right, that is Kara Zwiebel. My apologies, I pronounced your name incorrect the first time. Kara Zwiebel, Director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Members of the BC fitness industry say, hey, wait a minute, we can operate safely too. And perhaps some of those rules also need to be relooked at and perhaps the restrictions could be changed or modified. We're joined now by Sarah Hodson, President and CEO of LiveWell Exercise clinic sarah thanks so much for being with us thanks jill Uh, so as it stands right now and from how i understand reading the current rules when it comes to gyms and fitness centers so nothing high impact uh, yoga dance studios any type of high intensity group physical activity things like spin classes aerobics hot yoga those aren't allowed uh, but you can still do individual workouts is that correct
2: that that is correct, and um, the the Fitness Industry Council of of Canada, um, I in in combination with Carl Almer, who leads up up uh, Club Sixteen, Trevor Linden Fitness, as well as as She's Fit, um, we have been working together to bring together the fitness industry within the province to not only be able to provide very safe. Um, uh, opening plans and, and a safe experience for our members, but, um, now also to work with the provincial government to really look at how can we have high intensity fitness open and open safely and what are the right measures that, that we can take. Of course, when we consider high intensity fitness, we are considering a higher ventilatory rate and, you know, what number of people can we have in a space I think that the good news in all of this is that there is the ability for us to do this safely and united with the province. Um, Our goal is to really um, provide opportunities for British Columbians to that that promote their physical and mental health. And so I know it is possible. uh, We can practice safe fitness in this province. And I think that we're on a really good pathway in that now the fitness industry, so the Fitness Industry Council of Canada, specifically in this province, has grown to represent over 100 fitness facilities. And we're coming together to say, you know, we can do this and we can work with our province, be aligned and open these fitness facilities because exercise is essential for our physical and mental health. And there really is no time like now that we actually
0: need those services. Uh, do you think it can be done then? Because one of the comments, I know uh, when Dr. Henry has been asked about this, uh, she has said that there is, there is evidence that shows there is transmission and the transmission goes up when people are say on a treadmill or in those high intensity environments where you're huffing and puffing and, and your heart rate is up and you're breathing very heavily. So is there a way, how do you do that in a safe way? yeah um
2: i think that first it's really important for us to look at the worldwide data really shows that there's about a point zero six percent um new COVID case um reporting across the world in fitness facilities so a very very low risk activity to be participating in of course when we combine, no matter what the activity, a lot of people in a small space with poor ventilation and a high ventilatory rate, yes, that is where the concerns are coming from. However, there are absolutely safe and very realistic measures that we can take in order to, um, to create safe fitness spaces, including the use of masks. And there's a lot of really great technologies out there that do allow us to be active and fit with the use of masks and a lot of research to support that it's completely safe for us to be exercising with masks on. It may feel uncomfortable, but if it's what allows us to go out and participate in our typical fitness activities, then those are just the adjustments that we all have to make right now. So from wearing masks to physical distancing to all of the things that we are used to doing, Now we can create a safe environment for high-intensity fitness.
0: So you would be okay then, or fitness centres would be okay, requiring it for the patrons to also wear masks, not only the employees?
2: Absolutely. And as the Fitness Industry Council of Canada, specifically here in BC, um, about 19 days ago, we decided as a coalition to make masks mandatory within our facilities. Um, and though that may for, for some of our members may feel uncomfortable and, and may feel difficult overall, I think that if, if, if it is what keeps our doors open and keeps um, public health, at the forefront then these are the things that we need to do right now but keeping masks mandatory putting masks on while we are active is one of the biggest ways that we can um, prevent new covid cases and transmissions
0: do you know if there's been any study and this might be a better question maybe for a medical doctor but do you know if there's mm-hmm. been any study in i'm just thinking of something like hot yoga or something where you are high intensity and you're really sweating that mask is going to get wet and i'm just wondering if a mask is still effective when it's wet and when when, when you're at that stage?
2: Yeah, so what we do know about masks is that um, when they do become dampened, that we do want to refresh them. So again, there, there is mask protocols that we can put in place where yes, it may mean that somebody does have to refresh their mask, but that could also be for the person participating in low intensity fitness based on their level of fitness and their ventilatory rate. I mean, we all sweat at different levels, we all breathe at different levels. Some of us are heavy breathers, some of us are lighter breathers, and so that is really individualized. And I don't think that's a reason for us to either keep gyms open or to not keep gyms open. I think that. This this all brings in kind of the social responsibility that we can provide to our other gym mates by putting a mask on and by changing it regularly if necessary.
0: Uh, do you think it's more of a challenge for fitness centres and, and gyms? Because uh, you would think that the spread of that, if there if there is COVID-19 spreading in these scenarios, it's most likely people who are asymptomatic because I would hope that you're not going to do an, a high-intensity workout or that you wouldn't be doing that if you have a fever, chills, body. Aches if you have the symptoms uh, of having this virus. So does that make it more challenging that uh, it's probably or most likely people that don't have any symptoms? Uh,
2: again, I don't think that it's a challenge if we have all of the right safety protocol protocols in place. Um, and, you know, here in British Columbia, since fitness reopened um, after our first set of closures, so back in kind of late May, early June, as the fitness industry came alive again, we have clocked millions and millions of healthy check-ins and fitness facilities without any transmissions. And so I think that, again, we, can, we, we really have to look at the data. And the reality of what's happening in B.C. is that fitness is a really healthy way for us to um, take control of our health right now, for us to be active, for us to improve our immunity, for us to manage our mental health in a very, very safe environment. And I think the key takeaway here is that we can practice safe fitness and we can absolutely, as the fitness industry, provide that to our members in terms of putting public health at the forefront.
0: January is uh, traditionally a time (laughs) when uh, people who haven't maybe been getting to the gym start up again, uh, make resolutions and do that. So what is it going to look like if things stay the way they are? And as it is now with the current restrictions in place until at least January 8th? hmm.
2: Um, I, I think that 2021 is actually going to be a really exciting year for for the fitness industry and for people embarking on fitness journeys here in B.C. And the reason I say that is because 2020 has caused us to pause and there is no greater time in our lifetime that we have thought about our health more than we have this past year. And what I know is that, you know, fitness um, you know, for people who fell away from fitness, from their routines, from going to fitness facilities, from from being active, so many people have gone to online options, which is great because fundamentally we have to stay engaged. But in 2021, I believe that fitness is the comeback kid. Fitness is going to be where people are going to be ready and they want to get out there and people are going to, in a very safe way, be able to come back come back to a community of people, come back to exercising at facilities because the majority of people have never thought about their health the way that they have had to now. And in order for us to even prepare for a vaccine, we our bodies need to be healthy and prepared in order to produce those antibodies, in order for us to have the immunity to fully accept the vaccine. And so I think that, again, the fitness industry puts itself in a very, very important and key um, uh, position for British Columbians as we enter 2021. So I think this is going to be the year of the comeback
0: kid for fitness. All right. So, Well, we will uh, wait to, and see what happens there and uh, hopefully chat with you again. Sarah, thanks so much for joining thanks, us today. Jill. Okay, take care. That is Sarah Hodson, president and CEO of Live Well Exercise Clinic. This is a very difficult story. Some of the details might be, well, they might not, they might be disturbing for some listeners. This is following up on a story from yesterday the BC Prosecution Service not approving charges against any of the police officers involved in the 2015 death of Miles Gray. We heard from Gray's family yesterday. And one of the questions being asked is, is about what happened in the final moments of Miles Gray's life. And in that statement released yesterday, the prosecution service said that it could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the officers committed any offence in relation to this incident and that the only witnesses to what happened were the seven attending members of the Vancouver Police Force. Well, joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, What is your response uh, to to hearing about this and the fact that uh, no charges will be laid in this case?
3: Well, the first thing I would say is that any time a citizen is seriously injured or 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 dies as a result of their interaction with the police, I think that's that's a tragic um, outcome and one that uh, everyone should be concerned about. But we also have to remember that uh, you know police officers responded to about thirteen and a half million calls for service last year and. Most of those are resolved without incident or without notice. Um, you know, of course, whenever a tragedy like this occurs, it doesn't diminish the impact of the loss when it happens. So, uh, it's a difficult incident, like you suggested at the in your opening.
0: Uh, One of the the lines in the report uh, that was released uh, says that the IIO, which uh, we know the the organization that investigates any time there is a a death or an injury that involves police officers, the IIO faced several challenges affecting the pace of its investigation. A key police witness refused to participate in a follow-up interview, making it necessary for the IIO to apply to BC Supreme Court. Uh, That's, I think, what a lot of people are grappling with or having issues with and asking why would a police officer, uh, a key police witness, refused to participate in interviews that are trying to determine exactly what happened.
3: Yeah, you know, I, this has been a very controversial incident, obviously, and like I said, it's had a huge impact, particularly on 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 the family. Um, and I think it's been easy to criticize certain aspects of it, but the reality is um, police officers did cooperate. There were interviews given the night this incident happened. Uh, the issue that went before the court was a dispute over how the I.O. at the time was uh, treating certain officers and that issue was resolved. The fact is that the, the outcome of this investigation took a long time because there were a number of other things that needed to happen, including the pathologist's report. There was a review of the initial examination. So I would argue that the issues Involving the officers and, and their participation in the investigation were resolved uh, well ahead of, of many other steps that took uh, a longer period of time. So, and it, you know, that is something that I think we should be working towards is more timely outcomes on these investigations. But at the end of the day, uh, I think to, to try and attribute the delays exclusively to the officers is, is sort of misrepresents what actually happened.
0: Uh, but isn't that kind of the whole key point in that is that we don't know exactly what happened and and there could be an argument made that one of the reasons we don't know is because uh, an officer in this case refused to participate in a follow-up yep. interview.
3: Yeah, but we do know what happened and in fact all of the officers that were involved did participate in interviews with the IIO. Um, you know, there, there, there was a disagreement over the timing of those interviews, but in the, at the end of the day, every single officer was interviewed and did participate. Uh, so they provided their account of what happened on that day, and the IAO submitted uh, their findings to the Provincial Prosecution Service, and they, and they assessed the evidence and, and, and obviously made a decision.
0: Is it difficult in, in cases like this? And, and thankfully, there aren't, as you said, there are millions of calls, uh, all the that that take place. And thankfully, we don't often hear of a case like this. But we're talking about a man who we who we know uh, was handcuffed, was hobbled, uh, had uh, a numerous, a long list of injuries, uh, including uh, broken bones, uh, broken. Uh, a, 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 dislocation of joints, uh, a a ruptured testicle. The level of injury just seems so great, given the fact that we also know this man was handcuffed and hobbled. That's what I think people are also grappling with as to trying to figure out what happened.
3: Yeah, well, these are difficult cases. There's no question about it. Uh, You know, unfortunately, the police um, ultimately... uh, you know, are, are the people that respond when individuals in our communities are in crises. There are often a number of underlying issues that drive um, people into that kind of crises, whether it's a mental health issue, a substance abuse issue, uh, or, or, or any other um, issue that, that, that puts a person into a, a difficult situation. Uh, this was a prolonged incident that happened over a period of time. There were uh, there was a need for a number of officers to respond because they were unable to bring Mr. Gray under control. And, and you know, whenever you use force, and in this case it's clear that force was used, um, injuries can result from that. And I think what's important to remember is that these officers used the equipment and the tactics that they were trained to use and that are authorized for the police to use in this province by the province of British Columbia through the Ministry of the Solicitor General and Police Services Division. So, you know, they're, they're difficult um, incidents, and and I don't think there's any easy way to, to talk about them. Uh, I think the bigger issue is we need to look at them like has been the case, and I understand now that the Police Complaints Commission is also going to do their own review. Uh, we need to figure out, you know, what happened, what we can learn from it and try and do as much as we can to mitigate these kinds of incidents from happening. Unfortunately, though, in the society that we live in, where we do have significant issues with mental health, with substance abuse, with with a you know, myriad of other social issues that, that affect people, Uh, we're going to have interactions at times that that are difficult to talk about. We need to keep talking about them and we need to figure out a way to to try and respond uh, to those issues as best as we can.
0: Uh, And in fact, you mentioned uh, the the response of police and the report does go into detail on that. Uh, It says that while there was no doubt Mr. Gray suffered serious harm, that does not automatically lead to the conclusion that the force against him uh, was unlawful. Uh, It goes on to say that uh, the various uh, uses of pepper spray the use of vascular neck restraint uh, all fall under uh, the purview of, of what is uh, what is allowed in these types of, of incidents. Uh, but it's the timeline, I think, as well that, that, that might have people questioning in that Mr. Gray died, was pronounced dead at 4.21 in the afternoon. The first call was made uh, at 3.18. And in the report, it says the eyewitness accounts of the seven VPD officers present prior to 15.28, 3.28, provide incomplete and in several respects Inconsistent accounts of the detail and sequence of events in this critical ten minutes. How does that happen?
3: Well, I've been a police officer for thirty years, uh, and I've been involved in obtaining uh, witness statements from police officers and from citizens. And I can tell you that it's it's uh, it's pretty typical that uh, different people are going to recall. Uh, incidents in different ways. Uh, there are many factors that come into play. Uh, you know what their level of experience is, uh, what they're what they're feeling, uh, how, how threatened they felt. In this particular case, we know that police officers were injured as well. Some of them um, um, suffered from those injuries for an extended period of time. One police officer probably won't ever recover from the injuries he sustained from that incident. Uh, there was lots of um, trauma involved. The, the officers used the training that they have been provided and the tools that they've been provided to try and gain control of, of Mr. Gray. There are other witness accounts that describe his erratic behavior before the police arrived on scene. Uh, and when he was in medical distru- distress, those same officers uh, tried to render first aid and got more resources there to try and assist Mr. Gray. And, and, and unfortunately, it wasn't enough and, and there was a tragic outcome. But again, these are difficult uh, incidents. And when you have people... In dynamic situations where there's lots of violence involved, uh, there are going to be injuries, and it's going to be chaotic. And it's and because it's chaotic, and everybody's got a different perception or. Or response to what happens you're going to get different accounts of of what occurred in in those kinds of circumstances. Uh,
0: This particular incident has reopened the conversation on several occasions for body cameras saying that when we have a situation where in this report it's saying there there was a different recollection of what happened and inconsistencies in the reporting would a body camera not help if there were body cameras on those seven officers would we not have a better idea what happened?
3: Well, we would have video uh, of what happened potentially, but but the video is not going to tell you what the officer's perceptions were of uh, what was happening at that particular scene. And, and we've seen that from the research so far into body-worn um, uh, cameras and the video that you can obtain using that tool. But it is a tool. It's another tool. Um, um, uh, um, way to record what happens in an incident, and and that's a discussion that's ongoing, and I think that um, uh, we'll, we'll, it's a discussion that will probably continue. We're seeing some services deploy uh, body-worn cameras more widely, but again there's a cost attached to that, and you know, here we are in, in Vancouver and other cities across Canada mired in a conversation about defunding the police and cutting police budgets, so it does, you know, there, there's always a call for Um, new technology more training and and a variety of other things whenever these incidents happen and and, in some cases it's appropriate to look at new technology or more training but there's a cost attached to that as well and at the same time you know the public want more police officers on the street responding to crime issues in their neighborhoods so you know decision makers have to make uh, tough choices when it comes to how to allocate the funds that are available against many many other competing demands.
0: I just have one other question. You mentioned the injuries to the officers as well. Uh, In the report, it says some of the officers involved in the arrest sustained minor injuries. Uh, That medical records show one officer had been punched on the side of the face, had a small cut under his chin, and another had a five-centimeter cut on his forehead caused by a low-hanging tree branch. Uh, I mean, those don't sound very serious, but it it sounds like you're aware of much more serious injuries.
3: Yeah, I was disappointed in how uh, the B.C. Prosecution Service described the injuries to the officers. I am uh, very aware of some of the injuries that were sustained, and and, yeah, some were minor, and certainly in the context of the overall tragic outcome that we saw in this case, I'm not going to suggest that they were um, at the same level, but uh, you know, I know one officer is still struggling with the effects of the injury that he sustained and and, uh, being involved in an incident like that is traumatic for all involved, and there have been um, uh, challenges around that for the police officers that were involved as well. And I, you know, I think people need to remember that you know these are police officers are people too, and and yeah, they're, they they wear a uniform, and they're provided with some training, and they're and they're required to respond when these kinds of issues happen. But it, you know, these are difficult. Um, incidents for for everyone involved and there is an impact over time and more broadly the the issues related to mental health and wellness in our industry are well documented i'm not going to get into it here but um nobody is involved in an incident like this and 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 remains unaffected by their involvement
0: all right Uh, tom stamatakis we'll have to leave it there for today but thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it you're welcome Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian Police Association. Well, you likely heard about the outbreak of COVID-19 at the Big White Ski Resort. Yesterday on their webpage, they put an update on saying Big White Ski Resort with direction from Interior Health is in the process of securing safe housing for those affected by the COVID-19 community cluster announcement. Interior Health reported 60 positive cases on the mountain related to group housing and social gathering gatherings said the release goes on to say Big White employs 55 percent of the total workforce 636 employees on the mountain and manages accommodation for 24% of the workforce, 152 employees. In the summer of 2017, they built new apartment-style accommodation in the Black Forest area and all others working and living on the mountain live in private residences. Uh, It goes on to say that they have directed the management team to personally speak to all staff regarding the community cluster and present them for the third time with the social responsibility contract to once again recommit to and physically acknowledge in the presence of a supervisor that uh, you will uh, agree to all of the health protocols it says then that big white ski resort also has a daily health protocol in place which follows the guidelines of the provincial health officer requiring all employees working in the resort and their offices off mountain to sign a health declaration upon beginning work it says uh, the resort has zero tolerance with any employees who are found to be in breach of these documents to that end we have had to let go some of our employees so that got us wondering what rights do you have as an employee how common is it that employers are firing employees that aren't following the health protocols well alia varani who is an employment lawyer and associate at samfiru tamarkin llp is joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about this thanks so much for being with us
4: Thank you very much for having me. Um so yeah, I've seen this article and I really feel for both sides. It's a it's a difficult situation cuz you know, people need to earn an income and uh, employers need to ensure that they're meeting the regulations so you know it can be a competing set of interests sometimes
0: and it does seem like a pretty i get to what they're saying that people and so this is the third time that employees have been given this contract clearly there were some employees who weren't following it so they were fired which which does seem like perhaps the harshest uh, move that the the company could take but is there anything that that is questionable or could be challenged there that's a very good question so i mean it's heavily employed that the employees were fired for cause and
4: uh, if that has uh, if that's what the employer is saying then they have to meet a very high threshold and typically we don't see one incident of misconduct being uh, serious enough but in some situations it can be and if if in this situation if the employees are intentionally lying to their employer um and it's about something serious like knowingly going into work when they have a case of COVID then that's kind of the more serious conduct that we would look at that may meet that threshold of a, of a four-cause termination. I think what I would want to know in this situation is, um, you know, before they updated this policy, if the employer made it very clear to the employees that part of this contract and lying uh, under the contract would result in their immediate termination, that would really be best practice for the employer because the employees need to know uh, the consequences that will be enforced. Um, if not, then they may not have... Uh, The employer may not follow that process that they need to follow to make sure that they've met that threshold to prove just cause. Um, And the other thing I would want to know is if if the employees are, uh, if they know that they're symptomatic or if it's simply that they're making a, um, if they didn't know that perhaps they had COVID and they did the best they could and then it turns out that they did have COVID, then perhaps that's not going to meet the level that the employer would need to show for cause because it's an honest mistake. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's an important distinction to make. I don't know the circumstances in these terminations, but I, I'd want to know what, what exactly went down um, and how the employer made that decision.
0: Right. And, and I think a lot of workplaces in this pandemic for people who are still working on site do have to fill out. And, and that's one of the rules, at least here in B.C., uh, that you fill out the questionnaire. I don't have symptoms. I haven't been around anybody with symptoms. There's no one in my household uh, with these symptoms. I haven't been outside the country. Uh, they're pretty basic questions that, that people fill out. Uh, looking at the, the, the social responsibility agreement, though, at Big White, one of them, too, is it says, I will alert my supervisor immediately if I observe any unsafe practices that may affect the health of others so corrective actions can be implemented. Uh, it also says, I will follow all protective measures on my way to and from work. This includes time spent at gas stations, going to the store, picking up food, etc. Uh, does an employer have the the, the, the are they allowed to kind of restrict or have that kind of oversight on your time outside of work? That's an amazing
4: question. So off-duty conduct, uh, I think that may be an overreach. So... While, while the employer has that, like you said, an obligation to follow those health and safety orders and, you know, make sure they're following work-safe policy and certainly the provincial health orders, um, the stuff that they can mandate the employees do on their free time, that's a little bit l- less clear. And so if they're terminating employees for cause on the basis of uh, the employee's behavior that they think has not followed this social responsibility contract, then I think that would be a situation that may, may not always be found to be just cause. So so that's a that's a soup that's a, you know a very important point that you're making. I think the other thing that I noticed when when I was looking into these articles is that and you've mentioned this at the beginning of your show is the employers were organizing a lot of this housing. And so if they made it so so that the employees were kind of set up to fail in, in the sense that if by living in this housing they weren't able to meet those requirements anyways then i think that that would be a problem for the employer.
0: Right, because the other one of the other boxes that you'd have to check for working there is i will adhere to all prevailing government legislation as it relates to social gatherings at all times both on and off duty as well as any instruction as to relates as it relates to quarantine or self-isolation received by the interior health interior health authority. So if you're in somebody that's in housing that's provided by your employer, but you have four roommates and you have to isolate, would it then be up to the employer to make sure you have space to isolate?
4: Yeah, I think that if, they're, if this is something that they're requiring employees to follow, in and, and their perspective, that covers you know, their conduct off-duty, whether or not that meets the requirement um, that they need to show for cause, it's probably a good practice of the employer to, to provide an opportunity for the employees to isolate properly and to follow the policies that they're asking them to follow. Um, I think that they, they have uh, in their statement made, that you mentioned in the beginning of the program, that they're going to make arrangements for better, um, better and more appropriate housing so that employees can do this. But um, that, that's certainly some of the murky area surrounding um, the circumstances where Just Cause may or may not be found that I'd need to see maybe this specific scenario to get a better assessment of whether that has been the case.
0: Right, because it then says, uh, I understand that non-compliance of the above protocols will result in losing access to my workplace and can lead to further disciplinary action. Repeated or significant violations may lead to termination. I- is that enough? Because that seems like that could be interpreted different ways as well.
4: Yeah, so we've got maybe a couple of scenarios going on. Uh, you could have a situation where an employee knowingly goes to work, lies uh, uh, that they don't have COVID when they do that can maybe be a situation where it's serious enough that the one event could could meet that level required for just cause. If it's a situation where maybe they're not maintaining distance in the workplace, the six feet apart, for example, not wearing a mask or not following some of those other policies for conduct on the job, then maybe there would be a system of progressive discipline that would need to be followed before the employer can safely say that they have the right to terminate. Uh, their employees for just cause, because it's a very serious thing. It, it essentially means you're not entitled to notice of your termination or any severance pay. So, so they have to make sure that they're really meeting their obligations to the employee uh, to take away those rights in the sense that they've provided them fair notice, progressive discipline, essentially done everything that they could um, before termination, um, such that they're saying that that relationship cannot be salvaged. The working relationship cannot be salvaged. Essentially, is what they're saying by terminating an employee for cause.
0: Right. And the, the one, and I think that's a that's a good point. That if you lie about having COVID, if you lie about symptoms, uh, that's very serious, and it's something you yourself have done. Uh, but one of the other ones is the the one uh, box that ha- that employees had to check, saying, "I will alert my supervisor immediately if I observe any unsafe practices that may affect the health of others, uh, so corrective actions can be implemented." It, isn't that kind of making employees be the COVID police and, and saying you have exactly. to report your your coworkers or your, maybe it's your supervisor. You have to report people if you see this. And if you don't report others doing this, you yourself could lose your job.
4: You're absolutely right. I think that's an amazing point. First of all, this is the first time I've gotten information about the specific uh, uh, rules in the contract. So it's amazing that you have that, uh, that access to that. But that's extremely problematic because that's potentially not the role of the employee. Um, the other thing that could be an issue is if they improperly police and perhaps maybe somebody just has an ailment or an illness that's not COVID and the employer takes adverse steps. And what I mean by that is they do something that affects that other employee uh, negatively in their employment. Maybe they uh, take away their privileges or, or, you know, put them in a back-facing role because of some other employee's um, unofficial tip. Uh, about symptoms that they think they have, then that could be seen as being discrimination on the basis of, you know, illness or disability, which is one of the protected grounds under the Human Rights Code. So, so they have to be very careful in, in not overstepping their rights as an employer, uh, or, or rather their obligations to the public health orders as an employer when they make these policies, because I think that term especially is problematic.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. But Aliyah, thank you so much for joining us and walking us through this. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That is uh, Aliyah Varani, employment lawyer and associate to Samfiru Tumarkin LLP. We were talking about this earlier on in the program. No charges have been approved following the IIO investigation into the death of Miles Gray. Miles Gray died in 2015. There was a call made to police after he was reportedly uh, spraying somebody with a watering hose and acting rather agitated. Uh, The report into this is not sitting well with the family of Miles Gray. And we're going to talk to one of the family members a bit later on in the program right Right now, though, we are joined by Ronald McDonald, the IIO Chief Civilian Director, on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Good afternoon, Jill. How are you?
0: I'm very well. How about you?
5: Good. Thank you. Uh,
0: What is your response to the Prosecution Service and the release yesterday that there will not be charges in this case?
5: Well, I certainly know that the decision made by the Prosecution Service is very disappointing to the family of Mr. Gray. Um, They... Uh, They view this matter as one that uh, required charges. Um, The uh, IIO and essentially myself made the decision that the facts of this case uh, gave rise to reasonable grounds to believe that an officer or officers had committed an offence. And that's why we referred the matter to the Crown for consideration of charges. However, um, while we have had discussions with the Crown about their decision, uh, I don't intend to share that discussion here, but we have made our thoughts known. But at the end of the day, uh, it is the Crown's decision to determine whether or not the matter should proceed to a criminal trial, and they have decided no.
0: Uh, Some of the passages uh, in the release from the prosecution service and uh, based on your report and what IIO, the investigation, uh, was able to uncover, uh, I think people are having a really difficult time with the things when they hear things like the eyewitness accounts of the seven VPD officers present to prior to 328 uh, provide incomplete and in several respects, inconsistent accounts of the detail and sequence of events in this critical 10 minutes. Uh, How how difficult was it for IIO investigators to, to find out and get answers as to what was happening?
5: Well, it is a challenge, of course. This is an incident that occurred um, in a yard that was surrounded by bush and trees. There were no civilian witnesses. There were no video. There was no video. Therefore, the only witnesses to the incident were police officers. Um, those people that we deem to be witness police officers, um, in other words, not subjects of our investigation, um, are required to give a statements, and early on in the investigation or during the initial parts of the investigation, there was some disagreement um, by some of those officers about their duty to cooperate. Um, that led to a court case that was eventually resolved um, around the time that I arrived at the IIO in October of 2017 and shortly thereafter. Um, but that did delay things somewhat. Um, but the majority of the officers in that yard were originally six of them originally deemed to be, What we call subject officers or subjects of the investigation and therefore they're not required um, to give us statements much like any citizen of canada isn't required to participate under the charter um, under the charter because of your charter rights to participate uh, in in an investigation against yourselves the crown did refer to um, as we understand it at the iio they did refer to file uh, statements Um, of those officers which we did not refer to because we don't consider we're entitled to Um, and then they did discuss how there were inconsistencies between those officers Um, some might suggest that um, the facts of this case are such that it ought to be tried and the issues of inconsistencies could be resolved in a trial Um, however the crown has decided not to proceed in that way.
0: Uh, Does it then raise the question of whether or not police officers should be held to a higher standard? Mm -hmm. And that I get what you're saying. You can't compel a witness to cooperate. You can't say you must tell me uh, what you saw and you must do do this. But when we're talking about a police officer, uh, somebody who is employed to protect people, somebody who is paid for by taxpayers is, is, is a police officer and they are responding to a call. It wasn't like this was a police officer who off duty just happened to walk by. Uh, should they be held to a higher standard that when you are a police officer at a call, you do have to tell people what happened? Well,
5: you know, there, there certainly is a, uh, a, a body of thought in this country um, that supports that, that contention. And it's um, there is some law that is supportive of a compelled statement in certain circumstances. Um, the question comes down to, um, you know, are we going to have a country that requires a person to give evidence against themselves in a criminal matter? And at this point in time, my interpretation of the law is that we can't do that. Um, They can be compelled or required to give evidence in, in matters that aren't criminal, for example, in disciplinary or conduct type proceedings um, in a lawsuit. If there was a lawsuit and they would be compelled to give evidence, but the, the, In I I believe the current state of the law in this country uh, is such that uh, compelling them to actually be a witness in an active investigation against themselves is something that the charter wouldn't uh, wouldn't support. But as I have said, there are some who um, do hold the view that. There may well be exceptions to that um, uh, for police officers. And as the law develops, we may see this situation change. Uh,
0: Do you think this case, I mean, there has been a lot of conversation sparked by this case about body cameras. Do you think that would be a useful tool if police were, if it was mandated that they wear and use body cameras?
5: Yes, absolutely. This is the exact type of situation where body cameras would help with, um assist in the uh the, the accountability of police actions and assist in an organization such as ourselves to have evidence about what happened you know i always caution that body cameras are just a piece of evidence they won't be the be-all and end-all but it will be evidence that we w- we don't have now and it would offer a great deal more evidence than we were able to obtain in this case and in other cases such as this. So certainly, uh, it, it, it is my view, and I've stated it publicly before, that I believe all frontline police officers in this country should wear body cameras.
0: And uh, this might be out, outside of your scope, but uh, do you think anything will change now, or is there the possibility that now that this part of the investigation has concluded, uh, that the, the hearing now at the Office uh, of the Police Complaints Commissioner, that part now goes ahead?
5: Yes. So yes, exactly. And that's, they deal with the conduct and disciplinary issues, uh, policy and training issues will also be dealt with um, in a variety of different ways. Um, And that, that is important. It's not a criminal process, but it still is an important part of this entire process. Um, In addition, um, you know, uh, the, the, there is an outstanding lawsuit, as I understand it, for, for a civil claim um, that will require people to be held to account. And at the end of the day, in addition, the coroner's office will likely hold an inquest into this matter. So there are ways um, uh, and processes that will continue. This, this isn't the end of the matter, but it is the end of the matter from, from the criminal perspective. And as I say, that's the decision that's made by the Crown Office.
0: All right. We'll leave it there. Ron, thank you so much for your time today and for joining the show.
5: Okay. My pleasure. Take care.
0: You too. That is Ron McDonald, the IIO Chief Civilian Director. We have been talking about the release from the prosecution service in BC that no charges will be approved following the IIO investigation into the death of Miles Gray in 2015. Just before the break, we were talking with the chief civilian director of the IIO and about how this decision was made and many people being disappointed, to say the least, with that decision. Well, joining me now is Margie Reid, who is Miles Gray's Gray's mother. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I know uh, you spoke with Global yesterday as well, and uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you uh, and your family is going through. Uh, I, my condolences uh, for your loss.
6: Thanks. Yes, it was very. It was a very horrific and tragic day yesterday when we heard these eight officers were cleared of charges, Um, and they were cleared specifically specifically because of incomplete and inconsistent police reporting. Um, The IIO didn't even have the power really to compel any information from them, and I guess they weren't compelled to um, play by any rules. Apparently there are no rules for them. So basically that is why they were cleared, lack of evidence there's no witnesses. To this day, there are no witnesses. There are no video um, at the scene. There were no bystanders, no witnesses, no video. Um, Like I said, the reports are very inconsistent and incomplete. And even the forensic autopsy, like um, Ronald McDonald, uh, there was the initial forensic pathologist report and then it took six and a half months but he retained two other forensic pathologists in canada one was from alberta one was from ontario and they went through the tissue slides the photos the files and they could not come up with the definitive cause of death now yesterday we heard for the first time they were like so i mean i have the list of injuries it is ex- they hobbled handcuffed there wasn't one inch of his body that wasn't black blue and broken and yet they could not come up with a definitive cause of death and i don't know why they need to have a definitive cause of death i mean they have the photos they have the eight police who did this so i don't know why that that is a huge factor but they could not come up with the definitive cause of death because there were about nine reasons why he could have died, but they couldn't
0: figure it out. Right. What do you do now as far as, have you ever been told the names of the officers?
6: No, that was not revealed to us. So these eight officers that took Miles' life in the most horrific way got up this morning, put their gear on, and went to work.
0: Do you have any other recourse then as far as civil action, a wrongful death lawsuit? Uh, Have you uh, talked to, gotten any legal advice on that?
6: Uh, Well, we did launch with Ian Donaldson of Vancouver of Donaldson's Law back in 2015. We did launch a civil suit that was absolutely completely ignored by the city of Vancouver, the VPD and others that were named on the civil suit. Absolutely ignored. So... I haven't even had time to process yesterday then to consider how we do move forward with the silva suit and what comes next. That I don't know.
0: Uh, do you have any confidence that now that the the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner restarts that investigation that you might get any more answers?
6: I was actually pleased. Uh, we were actually very pleased when um, I received that file from the newsroom this morning that the OPCC had launched that to compel them and i don't know i don't know enough about the opcc to even like talk about that this okay. is a whole new thing for me so i don't know how they would compel officers to talk that the iio couldn't so that that there confuses me because then why don't the opcc do the investigations Because I was always led to believe, you know, they talk about the watchdog, the IIO being the watchdog, but apparently this watchdog has no teeth. They could not even get any evidence enough to incriminate one of these officers that killed Miles in the most horrific way. This is Canada. This should not happen. This happened in Vancouver in a backyard. Eight officers You know, when I found yesterday what they actually did to him, I mean, Miles was pepper sprayed not once, but twice. And this is graphic. But while he was hobbled on the ground, and this is straight from Crown telling us yesterday, an officer had a knee on his neck. And Miles at this time was unconscious, hobbled on the ground. Miles became conscious raised his arm, and apparently that was, he feared for his life, and then they started the beatdowns on him again and actually killed him. So it wasn't a very nice conversation hearing Miles was in and out of varying states of consciousness, but for somebody to be hobbled on the ground, officer on his neck, and Miles had the audacity to raise his hand, and they feared for their lives, and then put the boots to him, and they walked away cleared of any wrongdoing all I hope for is somebody saw something and I really intrinsically believe that somebody saw something it might take a long time but I believe somebody's going to step up and talk because I can't believe somebody could live with this kind of horror and keep it to themselves
0: uh, with the and we've only got about a minute left, uh, but just wanted to clarify as well because there 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 seems to be some confusion about a substance that may that was in Miles' system, uh, an herbal substance or a prescription substance. Do you think that played a role?
6: No, absolutely not. And I don't even know why that's part of the conversation because Miles' talk screen came clear. We found that out within one month um, when the IIO said, you know, his talk screen is clear. Kratom was in his system. Kratom is not an illegal substance. So that's like saying he had like a protein powder or valerian root. So I don't know why they're making a big deal about kratom. It is a herbal substance that is not illegal. It is not illegal. And it didn't play a part in it because he took kratom tea for over a year. And I saw absolutely no difference in him at all. It had a calming effect and um you know miles we saw all the time i worked with miles so we saw him like two or three times a week so it wasn't like we were estranged, and we saw him once a month we were very much part of each other's lives our family are very close and we were very you know he was a part of our lives we saw him all the time so Mm -hmm. that is what they put in the release but that's like saying oh he was on creatine or he was on protein it's a supplement all it's right. Not illegal.
0: Well, Margie, we're going to continue watching what's ha- what happens with the the police commissioner office uh, as well. A uh, coroner's inquest, uh, if one takes place. Thank you so much for talking today, and, and again, my, my my condolences to you, and, and I hope to talk to you again.
6: Okay, thanks. It's it's <laughs> thanks for having me, and it was a very tough day. Well, it's every day is a tough day for my family and I. It really is. We miss him
0: terribly. All Thank right. you so much All for right. your
6: time. Thank thanks. you.
0: Bye. 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 That is Margie Reed, the mother of Miles Gray. Switching gears and talking about something completely different from what we've been talking about today, a major research project is aiming to help communities on the south coast of British Columbia both prepare and adapt for the rising of the sea level. And what will that actually look like? Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Case Lockman, the project principal investigator, also a professor at UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Thanks so much for being with us.
7: You know, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, what What does this actually look like? Because it seems like it's a bit of a different approach when we're talking about climate change and what's going to happen to the coasts.
7: Yeah. So the project uh, will uh, deliver three different components in terms of helping our communities uh, adapt to the rising sea levels. One we're hoping with uh, the project's partners that we have to integrate community values and indigenous knowledge and perspectives into coastal adaptation uh, practices we hope to hope to broaden the solution space so most of the existing coastlines are protected behind dikes and seawalls, but we're seeing increasingly that this has negative impacts on coastal ecosystems coastal ecosystems are important for uh, biodiversity but they also support fisheries and coastal livelihoods. so can we develop different uh, solutions that uh, will also protect and enhance the coastal ecosystems? And then we're looking for solutions that uh, span across uh, different municipalities. So right now municipalities tend to be uh, by themselves uh, when it comes to coastal adaptation, but we know climate change um, is, uh, you know, a big issue and it doesn't recognize municipal boundaries. So how can we, um, provide uh, cross-jurisdictional solutions and multi-level governance arrangements for for adaptation solutions.
0: Right, because I would imagine you just look at the, the physical parts or the, the parts of say even Metro Vancouver and the issues facing South Delta, Richmond, that area would be much different than what's facing say Whistler or any parts of the interior.
7: Exactly and you know
0: I think we're dealing with
7: what's behind, uh, what's on the land side and what's on the ocean side. So, yeah, when you're looking at um, at the center of Vancouver and False Creek, for example, there's a whole range of different considerations than when we're looking at uh, Delta or uh, Boundary Bay, for example. So uh, there's no one size and one solution that, that fits everything. And we'll have to look contextually uh, and also with, you know, all the different stakeholders and right holders that are involved.
0: Uh, so what other things should we be looking at other than, say, in the areas that are, that are? it seems pretty obvious, if a place is below sea level, uh, talking about uh, upping the, the levels of the diking systems around there, doing that kind of physical uh, building of things. What other kinds of other creative ways should we be looking at, do you think, of dealing with this?
7: Well, there's, um, you know, more controversial things that we should probably be looking into, such as a strategic retreat or what's sometimes called managed retreat. And this is trying to understand where do we want to reinforce um, or does it even make sense in the long term both economically and ecologically to reinforce existing dikes or seawalls or can we uh, make sure that new developments or new infrastructure uh, developments are happening on higher ground so we don't actually need to rely on these flood uh, protection mechanisms that when they fail and you know we've seen them with hurricanes uh, in the past and uh, storms um, yeah, they they tend to fail, especially once they're older. Uh, they put a lot of people uh, at risk. So that's one uh, other uh, solution. Others include what's what's called nature-based solutions. So, can we uh, divert sediments or nourish our beaches or design our dikes differently so that they can actually accommodate, uh, you know, the development of ecosystems such as wetlands or or salt marshes that help buffer. Uh, storm surges before they reach the shores.
0: Are there other jurisdictions that you know of or other countries where we can look and see what they're doing and maybe even adapt or or adopt some of those policies?
7: Yeah, and this will be a big part of of what we'll be doing in the research that we'll be looking at uh, places such as uh, Houston, uh, New Orleans, uh, New York that have gone through unfortunately, some disasters, and they're changing ways in which they address this issue now. Uh, The Netherlands is another great place, but even in Southeast Asia, um, in Bangladesh, they're dealing with this at a whole different level and and with different financial means. So uh, part of this project will try to understand how uh, in different circumstances and different geographies um, they're dealing with this topic and, and what can we learn from that and how can we take that in the way that we kind of Uh, provide uh, funding mechanisms, uh, organize our policy uh, arrangements, uh, regulations and bylaws, for example. Uh,
0: This particular project, uh, this research project, is a four-year project, uh, a million dollars, which sounds like a lot of money, but I would imagine in the grand scheme of things, a million dollars isn't a huge amount when we're talking about a global issue. Uh, How much is that? I mean, is that a a reasonable amount, or what can be done with a million dollars?
7: Well, I think why we're so excited is because it sits at the, what the what's called kind of the science policy and practice interface. So often, when municipalities are hiring a consultant uh, to do work in this area, um, the you know the consultant and and the municipality doesn't really have a lot of funding to look into research and what's the latest uh, kind of state of the art when it comes to kind of coastal adaptation solutions. So. What this will allow um, our project partners, which, uh, which include the city of Surrey, the city of Vancouver, District of Squamish, Squamish Nation and the Tsleil-Waututh Nation, as well as the BC government to do, is to enrich some of the existing pilot projects that they have um, enriched with, with uh, state-of-the-art research.
0: It, it sounds really interesting. Do you think people are paying enough attention uh, to this uh, as far as where we live and, and on these floodplains? So are we paying enough attention to uh, just uh, just what could happen with the rising levels and doing enough to make sure we're, we're dealing with that in plenty of time? Um, unfortunately,
7: not, I think. I mean, it's a sea level rise, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, it's a slow moving target. So. Um, We have time to adapt, but since it's so slow moving, uh, I think it's also something that, you know, we often tend to ignore, except for when we see once a year, uh, a couple of days, we have the king tide and we get reminded that, uh, you know, this could be uh, our reality in the not so distant future. Or we have freshets and we see a large amount of snow melt come down the Fraser River, for example, and there's... um, you know, sometimes roads are being blocked or things are a little bit different. And so, um, yeah, part of what we hope to do is um, is work also on, on elements uh, that allow communities to, to enable more kind of um, community engagement and public awareness building around this issue so uh, that it can be a little bit uh, more on the near-term horizon of how we plan and set aside money for, for future adaptation efforts.
0: All right. Well, it sounds like a very interesting project for sure. Case Lockman, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Yeah, Thanks so much for having me. All right. Case Lockman, Project Principal Investigator, also a professor at UBC's School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, and the director of the UBC Coastal Adaptation Lab.